You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are continuing our hobby series, and I am excited about today. I've, I've really learned so much from these hobby series, but I can't take up all these hobbies at the same time, but I'm learning so much. And this I one, mean, you could. <laughs> this is one that has intrigued me for some time. And uh, as we shared before, we're talking with friends. Some are new friends, some are friends we've had for a while, uh, learning about their hobbies and excited to share this one with you today. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncomfortable. Common. Joining us today, Pastor Sean Smith. He's pastor of Evangelical Dual Parish of Emmanuel Campbell Hill in St. Paul Wine Hill, Illinois, and host of Concord Matters right here on KFUO. And what you may not know is he's a hobbyist vintner. I think that's the right term. Is that right? Good morning, Pastor Sean. That is the correct term. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, how did you become interested in winemaking or I did my homework. Is it vinification? Yeah. So that, that is the correct term. And also, uh, two, two points for you on doing your homework, but also, uh, yeah, it's, it's not really all that interesting a story of how I got interested in it. I, I enjoy hobbies. I think, I think I'm a firm believer that people need productive things to do with their time. Uh, I think it glorifies God to do so. And so I like to pick up lots of different hobbies. I, I listen to your uh, one, especially Pastor Asbury and doing woodworking. That's one I share as well and and really uh, enjoyed that. But so I like to pick up different hobbies and I have always been interested in doing some sort of fermenting. And I <laughs> literally, I, I just never really had the opportunity until ironically, I got married and then I, I decided I needed something to do and that maybe my wife and I could even do together. And it's been kind of a joy in that sense. And so my wife got me a gift of uh, a winemaking kit to kind of get me started. And the reason I decided on that rather than beer making is that I actually know a lot of other people that make beer and I didn't know a lot of folks that make wine and I live in Wine Hill, Illinois. So, I mean, if you look up the address, it says Steelville, but it's it's outside of Steelville, rural, rural Steelville. And I live on Wine Hill, which is the highest point in Randolph County in Illinois. And uh, and so I just decided winemaking was the thing to do. And so that that's, it's not that exciting of a story, but that's my story. <laughs> well, if I don't have, don't have to do anything else, I might as well just make wine. I mean, it works. <laughs> So what actually comes in a winemaking kit? Like I'm, I'm imagining this little box, but I'm sure that, that it's a little bit more complex than, than a little box that comes in the mail. Yeah, they have some different ones out there. Some that you can get just like some juice and yeast and you kind of have other things on your own. The kit that I got actually that my wife got me uh, included what's called a primary. It's basically a bucket, a plastic bucket. And that's where you start, you know, you put all your juice in there or your must. Uh, we can maybe talk about that and what some of these terms mean a little bit, but uh, you put all your juice in there uh, and then eventually put it over into a glass carboy. And so there was a little glass carboy that came with it as well. And then, uh, you know, basically the supplies that you need, there's things like a hydrometer for me measuring specific gravity and those sorts of things. Uh, that uh, are kind of the tools you need for making wine. And that's what I received. And I had a recipe book for how to make what we call country wines. There's kind of a difference between like real winemakers work with grapes. I don't have a lot of those uh, available to me, although there are some ways that you can do that and you can certainly get some juice for that. 
but I've enjoyed doing country wines, which basically just take fruits that are around and here in rural areas, got a lot of folks have blackberries and strawberries and I have a pear tree. And, and so you just take what's available to you and you ferment that. If it's got sugar, you can ferment it and make wine out of it. And some of those other wines, I like cherry wine is my favorite, absolute favorite mm. uh, from Northern Michigan. There is nothing like a good bottle of Traverse City cherry wine. Uh, yeah, if you get me some amazing. cherries from Michigan, then I'll make you some cherry wine. But That's I haven't so made cherry wine because I don't have any cherries available to me. Yeah, it's not really cherry growing area around here. Uh, yeah. You have mentioned several terms that I don't know. Um, also specific gravity, <laughs> which I'm really curious how that one fits in. Uh, but what are what what do all of these words mean? Yeah, so I, I didn't realize I was a little naive getting into this. I literally thought it would just be an easy hobby. But as I've learned, <laughs> most hobbies <laughs> require a lot of time and money and reading and learning and things like that, which again is good because it's it's something productive to do with your time and keeps you out of trouble. But uh, uh, so I, I've, I've had to pour myself into learning these things. So you, one of those tools that I got in my winemaking kit was called a hydrometer, uh, which is, you know, you would see this in chemistry and so forth. It, you put it in a tube and uh, it, it basically floats in the liquid that you put in there and it gives you what's called an SG reading or specific gravity reading, which basically measures the sugar content that is in the, the juice. And so that tells you how much is converted into alcohol, especially as it's fermented and that sugar, you know, the yeast feeds on the sugar and ferments the juice, turning it into alcohol, uh, that SG reading goes down and so there's less sugar in there, but more alcohol content. And so, um, yeah, a lot of, lot of science and math and those sorts of things that went into it that I naively did not realize going into it. But uh, uh, it's been a blessing because then, then I've gone back to my old school days and it's like, oh, yeah, I actually learned that for a reason. Uh, and it was for making wine someday. But uh, and then you uh, some of the other terms is you have the must, which this one's kind of a fun one because, you know, I, I like classical education and those sorts of things. And so this comes from the Latin mustum, which means young wine. And so basically it's just a fancy word for the juice that you've pressed out of the, the berries or, or the fruit uh, that you have that you'd like to make wine. So your must is what you start with uh, that you add yeast to. And then, you know, other terms like glass carboy and things like that, that's just a large bottle with a narrow neck and, that you use for secondary fermentation. It sits in there for a long time. So those are some of the basic terms. There's a lot of them as with any hobby uh, that could just go on endlessly. Now I'm curious what the, the ratios are. Like give us, a, just trying to paint a picture, like say you were doing a, making a, a blueberry wine. Um, how many blueberries does it take to make like you know, how, what's the quantity of blueberries to like two bottles of wine or a bottle of wine? Well, or, it's I don't know. quite a lot. So I don't, I don't know specifically off the top of my head. Maybe I should have looked that up or had my recipe book with me. But yeah, I mean, you'll get a lot of blueberries and there's some different ways that you can do it. You can do what's called hand pressing. You put it in a, you know, mesh bag of sorts and you kind of hand press the juice out. Uh, mm -hmm. And it can be, you know, several pounds of blueberries, for instance. And, and, and the real key here is, is some of this, while it's also involving a lot of science and measuring, you know, so a lot of what you do is based off of that specific gravity rating, you know, how much yeast you add and how, um, 
you know, how much water you add and those sorts of things as well. Uh, you, you're trying to balance all of these things and it's kind of a, a, a constant game. It's a lot like baking in, a, in one sense. My wife says that a lot. Um, and so, you know, you can have as much juice as you want and it will impact the flavor on the other end. And so as I've made several, you know, batches of strawberry wine, I get a lot of strawberry wine or strawberries and a lot of blackberries. So I've made a lot of those too. I've never had two batches turn out just the same. Sometimes they're a little sweeter Sometimes they're not as sweet and it sometimes depends on that specific gravity reading. And so basically I take what's available to me and then you determine, am I just making one gallon here? Am I making five gallons? But it would definitely be a few pounds, um, even to just make one gallon of blueberries. So does it still, so say you have a gallon of strawberry juice, cause it's just the juice that you're fermenting, right? Yes, basically. And then you add water to it too. Okay. And you'll get more, more content, but, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like making a juice from concentrate in that sense. Mm -hmm. That's actually one thing you can do. You can go to the grocery store and get the frozen juice concentrate and thaw that out, add water to it and then ferment that. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of get some juice. But it's you can't just use way. like a bottle of juice, right? That's been pasteurized. Yeah. Well, yeah, not well, pasteurize isn't such a problem because I pasteurize no. my my pear juice, especially before I, I make that into wine. It, it helps keep it safe, but it has uh, preservatives in it when it's already yeah. like in a bottle and and the that'll kill the yeast is basically because you'll put some of those things in yourself to kind of make sure the yeast doesn't continue fermenting when you get to the bot bottling process and so forth. This is. Wow, this is very complicated. <laughs> so <hobby>. much science. <laughs> exactly. All right. So I was completely naive to it myself, but it's been exciting. What's your favorite wine to make to date? My favorite wine to make, uh, I, I would have to say it was a little bit of a cheater's way, but there, there's a Cabernet Sauvignon that I make. And, and I give ecclesiastical terms to all of my wines. Uh, I've named my winery Cathedra Winery, which is the Bishop's Seat Winery. And, uh, and then at Wine Hill, of course. And then um, uh, canonical Cabernet Sauvignon. I, I really like a good dry wine. And all wine is actually dry initially, but uh, um, you, you'll back sweeten it. Most people, especially around here that I've noticed, don't really enjoy a good dry wine, but I do. So the Cabernet uh, Sauvignon, canonical Cabernet Sauvignon has been my favorite uh, in that regard. And that I received as, as some juice. I didn't press those grapes or anything. I didn't have that available to me, but I really enjoyed that. Outside of that, my favorite sweet wine was actually an apple wine that I made from apple juice that I got from some Amish around me. They had some, uh, had made some apple juice and, um, I fermented that and it, it turned out really, really good. I think, I think I've shared one of those with you maybe actually. So the, I think the last one I had was blackberry, which was that was awesome. It was really good. So yeah, I have tart. several parishioners that have blackberry uh, bushes. And so I, I get a lot of blackberries. Hmm. There's so much to this process. Now you'd mentioned, so you, you can make it just from juice that you receive from, from someone or that you buy, or you can press the fruit yourself. Now, do you have like one of those big tubs that you stomp the, the fruit in, stomp the grapes? I don't have don't one have of those. No, I've tried to convince my wife. And, and now that I have a toddler, I think that would be really good for him as well to get exactly. the energy out. 
Uh, but uh, I don't have I don't have one of those. I, I might look into that. But I did I did invest in a hand press. Um, but then actually I found in this you start to make connections when you have hobbies and you talk to other folks and learn what they do. And it's a fun way to meet new people, too, I think. But um, I, I, I met this other person that uh, one day her husband and she had used to make wine and her husband passed away. And so she was going to kind of give that up and pass on to me a bunch of bottles that she had and things like that, which I was very grateful for because that is a definitely expensive part of the process. But she told me that her husband and she started using a juicer and and that definitely has has been a much easier way. You just throw it in the juicer and and run it through there and and you get a lot more juice than I even get through the uh, hand pressing. Of course, it, there's there's, you know, kind of the the purest in me still likes doing the hand pressing. It's more authentic and those sorts of things. But if I'm pressed for time and I've been given a lot of berries and I don't want them to spoil, I, I'll, I'll run them through the juicer sometimes. Yeah, I'm guessing the apple juice you had didn't go through a juicer because it came from your Amish neighbors, right? Right. And I actually, <laughs> from other friends, I did receive a big, huge apple cider press um, for uh, making my own apple juice um, that I could certainly do that to myself. We're talking with Pastor Sean Smith of the Evangelical Dual Parish of Emmanuel Campbell Hill in St. Paul, Wine Hill, Illinois, host of Concord Matters here on KFUO for our hobby series, Winemaking. Today, we have more to talk about as we continue the conversation right here on the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're continuing the hobby series here on the Coffee Hour. Today we're talking with Pastor Sean Smith of the Evangelical Dual Parish of Emmanuel Campbell Hill, St. Paul Wine Hill, Illinois, host of Concord Matters on KFUO. Today we're talking about winemaking. I'm fascinated. There's a lot of science in this, so I would never be able to make the, like, I love science, but I don't think, it, it would take a lot of practice for me to catch up with where Pastor Smith is today on in winemaking. So before we went to break, Pastor, we were talking about some of your favorite wines to make, um, and it sounds like a, a Cabernet is your favorite to drink as well. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. How about a communion wine? What's an ideal wine for a communion wine? Have you made communion wine before? Yes. And as the host of Concord Matters, naturally, I use Concord, Concord. or <laughs> Concord communion wine. But that is, that is actually a pretty standard. And, and especially, and I have made my own communion wine. Um, and understandably so when you work in a parish you know sometimes folks don't deal with change this is true in all of life but especially in parish like don't, folks don't, don't deal change with the communion wine right yeah so uh, uh some folks were hesitant to change the communion wine although recently we did change especially with all the the covet things and so forth we went to a port wine uh, which is a higher alcohol content it's fortified 
And so it's a better sanitary measure. And port wine is actually pretty standard, uh, especially historically for the church in terms of being a communion wine. Uh, I have not made that myself uh, a port wine yet, but the, the Concord communion wine that I did make definitely was a higher alcohol content than uh, folks might be more familiar with, with the uh, typical off-the-shelf brands that are used in communion in most churches around the country, I think. So we've talked about the actual, like, making the, or what, what, what goes into making the wine, but you mentioned the bottling process. What are some of the... The, the things that go into bottling process, because when you're fermenting stuff, don't you have to be careful that things don't like explode? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember ironically, uh, Dr. Larry Meisner was my biology professor at Concordia, Texas. And it just one of those weird things that come back to you. I remember him talking about uh, the process of fermenting and yeast and those sorts of things from a bio- biology perspective. And he tells the story, he's retired now, but he told the story back then at least that uh, there was a student of his that she tried to make wine in her dorm at one point. And uh, by the way, Concordia, Texas, at least when I was there, was a wet campus. As long as you were of age, you were allowed to have alcohol. And and so uh, I'm assuming that this was all done legally. But she tried to make wine and... Um, you need to stop that wine from fermenting or have an escape for all of the air that comes off of there as it ferments. Um, it's, it's actually called an airlock that you would put at the top of the carboy as it goes through this process. And apparently she didn't and it exploded in her closet is where she was keeping that. And so I remember him telling that. And so that has always stuck with me, even into my process that I never knew I was going to take on of my own winemaking. And so I definitely make sure that there is a place for that to escape and that that yeast is is dead and dormant before I ever get to the bottling process, especially because I don't want corks popping out in my basement and shoot holes <laughs> through my hundred year old parsonage floor and <laughs> those sorts of crazy things going on, or exploding wine bottles in my basement. But yeah, and some of the other process that goes into it, a lot of you, you really need to sanitize the bottles. You have to sanitize everything. I mean, it's it's a whole process that takes a lot of time just to sanitize everything you ever use because just even the slightest bit can really impact your wine and you can have a really good batch of juice that just turns to vinegar, uh, which is kind of, you know, some people will actually do it like a wine vinegar. Some people want those sorts of things. So sometimes you want it to do that, but I don't, I, I, I want the wine. And so I don't, uh, you know, any introduction of a foreign substance can definitely sour your wine and ruin a whole batch very quickly on you. And especially when you get to the bottling process, very important that you have a sanitized bottle and that when you cork it, that it is uh, sealed airtight then and that that yeast is not still fermenting in there. So talking about exploding wine bottles, uh, do you have some uh, m- memorable uh, whoopsies, mistakes that have happened in your winemaking process? Um, yes. I, you know, judging when a bottle is getting close to full uh, is definitely a part of the process. So I've had things kind of, it gets narrow at the top of a wine bottle and it goes really slow when you're filling the bottom part of a bottle. And you're like, oh, I got I got plenty of time here to stop. And then next thing you know, that wine is just shooting out the top and you're filling the bottle. And then it's a whole process to kind of get it down to it. Because once you try to force that cork in with a corker, 
it also part of how it seals it airtight is it forces air down and up and out around the cork and seals it airtight as a part of that whole process. And so if you have too much wine in there, then, then, you know, wine can come shooting out while you're trying to put the cork in there. It's just, yeah, it's again, just a whole learning process of figuring out and, and you learn something each time you do it, which is again, true of most hobbies, I think, and, and a great benefit in and of itself. Any chance that your wife happened to capture any of these on, you know, on video or with photos? No, I'm no. usually the one that actually takes pictures of like her helping and so forth. And, you know, I don't know if this is strictly legal, but I, I definitely have learned, you know, I, early on when our son that's now a toddler and now we have, you know, an infant daughter as well. But uh, when he was an infant, our son was an infant, uh, we would strap him onto a pack and put him in there. And there was a definite point where he couldn't help anymore because he was going to want to put his hand <laughs> into the wine and things. Um, but uh, our son definitely helped uh, early on uh, in that bottling process, especially too. So, but uh, I captured some of those of my wife and and he doing that, but not not so much her catching me. Has anyone influenced your winemaking? You mentioned when you uh, you know share your hobby with others and then you start to get to know people through this hobby, has anyone influenced your winemaking? Who has been that influence, I suppose, is a question. Yeah, I don't know of any specific folks, although I do have to give thanks to, there's uh, a parishioner and elder of mine, Chris Snyder at uh, St. Paul's Wine Hill here, that uh, he and his wife, Sharon, bought a house where there was a former winemaker there who actually, the vineyards are still out there. And so maybe potentially I might be able to benefit from some of those grapes uh, at some point there too. Um, but he's still working and doesn't really have the time to put it into it himself. But he's he's been very influential in the sense of he's actually been able to supply some of the things that were still in the house when they bought it, as far as some of the glass carboys and those sorts of things, and a lot of bottles, a lot of bottles he's supplied as well. Um, but uh, other things, again, you just you meet people that do it as well, and you learn little things here and there and pick them up from one another. I don't know that there's been one influential person, although there is an interesting uh, documentary that you can find of John Cleese talking about appreciating wine. And my wife and I really appreciated that because John Cleese is just awesome, you know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh what kinds of tips do you have for newbies? I know you've you've mentioned a few things along the way, uh, but if someone wants to get into winemaking, is interested in in this, do you have a, a, a top top three or top five of, of things to definitely do or purchase? Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, starting as I did with the gift from my wife with a simple kit that kind of allows you to try it because I think, again, as with most hobbies, you've just got to start doing it and start learning. And a lot of times you learn by failure. And so, you know, as with most hobbies, as I said earlier, it becomes costly and it takes up your time, which is a good benefit in and of itself. But if you have just a simple kit and I, I you know, again, it was a gift, but I've looked at some of them, I would say generally about $60 or so can get you a kit that will get you start winemaking. That's a reasonable investment, I would say, to find out, is this for me? Or I almost gave it up myself when I realized how much science and math goes into it. <laughs> Then I really, I really enjoyed the benefit of being able to share wine. I put them in silent auctions to help support area Lutheran schools and uh, different uh, fundraisers and things like that. I enjoy sharing wine with my friends and, and them sharing that they appreciate it. And so 
for me, it's been worth continuing on and doing that. And I enjoy drinking wine myself too, but, uh, um, you know, find out, uh, at a more reasonable cost and, and, and a smaller batch too. uh, if, if I'm willing to put in all of the time and energy to learn, uh, this process. And so I think that kind of wraps up a lot of, a lot of points all in that kind of first point there. It sounds like it also requires some space. Like you have to have dedicated space to do this. It sounds like as well. Yeah. Although I've learned in talking with other folks that some people just do it again, kind of in their kitchen, or I've even learned like some people just kind of work around their bathtub because you've got a natural, well, I mean, seriously, it's a natural kind of faucet that is there and you can easily clean and sanitize around there and so forth. I work out of my basement. I mean, it kind of helps with, you know, from the cellars of cathedral winery, if you actually make, <laughs> you know, in a cellar uh, and it's hundred year old parsonage. And so there's just some kind of mystique to that as well. But uh, uh, space would be a, a benefit, but you can really work in a very limited space too, as well. How has this hobby been a benefit to your multiple vocations? You're a, a husband, a father, a pastor, a son, um, a host uh, here on KFUO. How has this hobby benefited those vocations? I think in a lot of ways, vocations help inform one another. In you know, really, it comes down to you need to spend time learning and growing. You need to learn patience and working with things. And winemaking has definitely been one of those things that as a pastor, that's a big part of what you do. As a father, that's a big part of what you do. Uh, living in your marriage, that's part of what you do. And also just being able to share some of these things, uh, you know, common things that husbands and wives do together, that's a benefit for the marriage. And so, yeah, definitely, especially when you're working with yeast, they can be very temperamental, a lot, a lot like toddlers. You know, they've got to be at certain temperature, this yeast, and you've got to pay a lot of attention to them and you've got to nurture them along so that they'll, they'll do their job and bring the fermentation to a good outcome. And so I think, again, that that mindset is the mindset that uh, a faithful pastor wants to have, certainly a father wants to have in raising his children. It's going to require your time and attention, and it's going to take a lot of patience. And so those sorts of things where you see those kind of connections and serves as a reminder, oh, yeah, that's what I'm doing in these other vocations as well. Uh, you know, don't get upset at it. Just just live in it. Our guest today, Pastor Sean Smith of the Evangelical Dual Parish of Emmanuel Campbell Hill in St. Paul, Wine Hill, Illinois, host of Concord Matters here on KFUO. Pastor Smith, thanks for teaching us about your hobby of winemaking. I've learned a, a lot today and realized that while I would enjoy the wine, I do enjoy the wine that you share with us. Um, I'm probably not going to be a great vintner. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of work in that. <laughs> but thanks so much for being our guest on The Coffee Hour today. It's been a joy and honor to be here with you. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.